I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm your host Shri Krishna, and our guest today is Manoj Keval Ramani, my colleague at Takshashila and a resident China expert. Hi Manoj, welcome back to All Things Policy after a break. Hi Shri Krishna, yes, nice long break. <laughs> How have you been? It's been nice. It's been nice. It's been busy season because of the party congress in China, but it's been nice to get away from everything uh, and take a break. That's great because I'm sure all our listeners were waiting to hear from you about the updates from the 20th Party Congress. But anyway, since we're going to be discussing that in detail, I'll begin with a short introduction for the benefit of our listeners. So last month, October was a momentous month for China. The 20th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party took place. Xi Jinping received an unprecedented third five-year term as the Secretary General of the CCP and the President of China, although this was pretty much expected. And also several key amendments to the CCP constitution were carried out. The party congress also witnessed a share of its controversies, especially when ex-president Hu Jintao was escorted out of the parliament under full media glare. This means that Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in China today and probably one of the most powerful world leaders. However, all is not well for Xi Jinping's regime going forward because due to the global economic slowdown and the zero COVID policy has resulted in a slowdown in exports from China. In fact, the exports from October has fallen and a lot of people believe that there exists a looming economic crisis as far as the world's second largest economy is concerned. So to unpack all these developments in China, we have Manoj with us today. Uh, so Manoj, why don't you begin by telling us what have been the big outcomes from the 20th Party Congress held last month? Right. Like you said, Shri Krishna, that, you know, this was a much watched event. It's a once in five years event. And for people who may be watching something like this for the first time, it's useful to understand what the Congress actually does. Right. Like I said, it's a once in five year meeting. It essentially is a meeting about personnel and policy. And in terms of policy also, you don't necessarily see significant changes or new initiatives or new announcements. Sometimes you may get a new theory or something like that announced, but those are sort of pre-decided things. So what really happens at a party congress is that you get, a you know, over a period of a year or a little more than that, you get a set of, you know, sort of electoral system. So you start this electoral system through which delegates get chosen for the congress. And so these personnel sort of come into place and you have replacements across different bodies of the party, the biggest and the key of them being the central committee of the party, which has full-time members and alternate members. And then from the central committee, you get about 25 people for the Politburo, although this time we have 24. And then from the Politburo, you get about seven, sometimes nine. So that number is not necessarily a definite number. Members of the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the heart of power. So the purpose of the Congress largely is to elect a new leadership or to select a new leadership. And that entails a lot of bargaining between different interest groups or factions. That sort of entails a lot of power play. And it entails sort of procedures which have 
kept changing, you know, depending on how leaders have acted. So for most people, they might have heard of these things like, you know, there are age norms that, you know, if you particularly for the highest levels of power, like the Politburo Standing Committee, that if you are 67, then you can get into the Politburo Standing Committee. But if you're 68, then you must get out and you must retire. Or if you serve two terms, then even if you're young, like that is below 68, you might continue, but you can't continue the same position. So there are these sort of norms which have existed, but there's nothing sort of, these are not rules. They're not written in stone. It's not like, say, you know, that the president of the United States can only serve two terms. So it's not that way. So what people watch out for is whether these norms are being adhered to, whether they're not being adhered to, who's staying, who's going. And all of this happens sort of behind closed doors. One rarely finds out. So that was sort of what was what people were watching and in, heading into the party congress. And what we saw was, you know, that there were no real surprises. You know, essentially Xi Jinping got a standing committee, a Politburo standing committee, which is full of his loyalists, people who were young enough to stay in the standing committee. For example, the current premier, Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, both have been removed, both have been booted out. I don't think it's a case where there has been a hostile thing. So I'm sure they're not happy losing power, but that they have lost their positions of authority. And you've got six new members, including Xi Jinping seventh, as a new standing committee. Some of the interesting sort of members who've entered are Li Chiang, who has been who had so far been serving as the party secretary or the boss of Shanghai. And there were lots of questions about, you know, Li Chiang. Li Chiang is supposed to be very close to Xi Jinping. And there were questions about, you know, whether he would get promoted. And that was being seen as a symbol of Xi Jinping's power because the lockdown in Shanghai earlier this year, the zero COVID policy in Shanghai earlier this year in March, April, May, and even June, the entire period had been quite badly managed. So the idea was would somebody who'd managed it so badly get in, particularly given the fact that the Communist Party keeps talking about the system being a meritocratic system. So clearly it's not meritocratic, it's more clientelistic. But that's one example. Another example is Ding Shang, who's again supposed to be very close to Xi Jinping, you know, Tsai Chi, who is the boss of Beijing, who was a big surprise, who sort of got into the Politburo Standing Committee. So what sort of in a nutshell, in terms of personnel, what we've seen is that people who have been loyal to Xi Jinping and close to Xi Jinping, known to be close to him, and loyalty through networks of previous work engagements, through networks of family, through networks of, you know, personal sort of cultivation of cliques as you rise across the system. That's how we're looking at loyalty. And these people have sort of been maintained. Again, in terms of age norms, we've seen the age norm not being adhered to. Xi Jinping himself is over 68. So the age norm was adhered to. He should not have continued in power. But even the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, who has, you know, been retained at the highest levels, he is older than the age norms. Chang Yoshia, who is the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, he's in his 70s. He has been retained. So so some of that tells you that, you know, those age norms have been not necessarily of value. And it just tells you about Xi Jinping's tremendous political control over the system. On personal, I think the last thing that I would add is that, you know, apart from Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, the exclusion of Hu Chunhua, who was fairly young, who was seen as a rising star for many, many years, who was seen as potentially a candidate to enter the standing committee of the Politburo, so the highest organs of power, did not even find a seat at the Politburo. And which which was really remarkable because the size of the Politburo was reduced from 25 to 24. And Hu Chunhua did not find a seat on that. He should have been there because he had been there in the past and he's there's nothing to tell us that why he should not. So the idea is that the 
other faction that these members represent, Li Keqiang, Wang Yang, and Hu Chunwa, which is called the Communist Youth League faction, has been basically decimated. It's basically been stripped of a lot of authority. Uh, when I say that, I don't mean that the faction has ceased to exist. It just means that it's completely weakened right now. So that's the personnel bit. On the policy bit, I think there's largely been continuity. And party congresses also talk about set a large frame of policies, which I think Xi Jinping's speech has set, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And those formulations also reflect in changes in the party constitution, which I think has taken place even at this point of time. For example, the big change in the party constitution has been that a phrase which is called the two safeguards, the two upholds, which means upholding or safeguarding Xi Jinping's authority as the core of the party and the core of the central committee, have been included as an obligation for all party members that's included within the party constitution. So that's a big sort of change that's taken place. So on this personal bit, I understand that a lot of people have been shuffled about. But is there any indication at all that Xi Jinping is grooming somebody as his potential successor? No, I mean, I don't think that there is any indication that he's grooming anybody as a successor. I think there are people young enough to have to continue forward. So that is likely to be the case. There are people who are there who can continue forward, you know, in 2027 onwards. But at the moment, I don't think there is anybody who one can clearly see and say is being groomed as a successor. I think Xi Jinping looks at himself and he sees himself as somebody who's going to be around for the next decade. I think he looks at himself as somebody who's going to be around to see what he calls as basic socialist modernization by 2035. That's his sort of first part of a two-stage plan to make China a modern socialist power. So I think that he sees himself as being there. I don't think he's grooming somebody. And I think he's also quite cognizant of the fact that in authoritarian systems and given China's own history, whenever a sort of paramount leader has appointed somebody as a designated successor, it has not necessarily gone well. It's actually been a recipe for much greater turmoil. So I think it's a catch-22. And I think he's cognizant of that. That doesn't mean that he can rule for eternity. Sooner or later, there will come a time where somebody else will need to take charge. And I think that's, again, a challenge for China because, because of Xi Jinping's dominance and his sort of complete decimation of any opposition, any visible opposition or any visible leader beyond him. It makes it, whenever the transition happens, whether it happens through a designated successor, whether it happens in a sudden manner, is always going to be really, really tricky. And I don't think it's something that he at the moment has really cracked. I mean, that said, from the perspective of how long Chinese leaders tend to live, Xi Jinping is quite young. I mean, he's 68, 69. Uh, Hu Jintao right now, whom you talked about, who was, you know, removed from the party congress on that final day in those dramatic visuals. He's 79 and, you know, there's been reports about him being unwell. So, you know, I think Xi Jinping looks at himself and he says, I think I have about 10 more years at least. So I don't think he's looking at a successor today. And what do you make of the whole predecessor being shown scenario, right? Because symbolically, it has opened a lot of interpretation. So... What is your sort of interpretation? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the challenge with something like this is that we will, I mean, the honest answer is that we will never know. And all we can do is speculate. You know, the Chinese media put out this explanation about Hu Jintao not feeling well. And like I said, there have been reports about different kinds of ailments, which again, because we don't have certainty, I don't want to speculate. But the fact is that we will never really know what exactly happened. The biggest speculation is that, you know, he was probably upset, you know, when he was trying to look at the papers. If you look at the video that's been put out by some of the journalists who were there, that he was probably upset and wanted to, you know, had figured out that at least Hu Chunhua particularly was not in the list. But then this is just, this is purely speculation on my part. I don't think that we will ever really find out the Chinese are not big on declassification of some of these things. So we're never going to find out 
right why that happened but to me i mean it just symbolizes that there is complete control today under xi jinping again that is this moment in chinese politics it's not a matter of eternity and whenever somebody has such total and complete control you know at the end of the day the person is human so change in such situations is often tumultuous so while it might seem extremely stable and with one person firmly in control it's worth keeping in mind that you know you're sort of one heartbeat away from significant tumult right so going forward what are the key economic takeaways from uh, the last month's events right because of course there is zero covid which has remained contentious and also there is talk of chinese style modernization and if i correct me if i'm wrong but i think this has found its way into the chinese constitution as well now so what is your view on this right i think that you know some of the economic sort of policies i mean like you said like you rightly pointed out zero covid is the sort of big uh, you know it's this sort of big monkey on the back of the chinese economy and unless you know the chinese communist party is able to figure out a way out of the zero covid conundrum it's going to be really difficult to sort of go back to any sort of normal economic functioning right because at the end of the day you're in a situation and i think today as we are recording you know on the 10th of november there was a politburo standing committee meeting which talked about zero covid specifically and again people can have multiple interpretations but essentially what the policy is saying what the statement from the Politburo standing committee is saying is that we must stay the course now how long can you stay the course when the virus has mutated in in such a manner that it is so incredibly transmissive that you know whatever lockdowns you're going to put there are going to be infections so china you know, the communist party needs to figure out a way where they can coexist with the virus but that ideologically seems difficult because xi jinping has sort of you know hung his hat on this idea of being able to contain the virus so you know i think it's going to be a big challenge he still seems to view the situation on covid predominantly from a healthcare prism and there are good reasons to do that but and he's not necessarily viewing it from an economic prism although the economic cost of this is increasingly becoming you know more and more apparent it's not just in terms of the unpredictability but it's also in terms of you know your ability to carry out the reform agenda that you're talking about your ability to be able to you know generate economic activity ensure that there is continuous investment ensure that people continue to get their jobs and companies don't suffer because there's only so far that the state can continue to subsidize people just a couple of days ago there was another sort of announcement made to support subsistence allowances for people migrant laborers people who've been employed in businesses which have been affected by the virus so there's a lot of state subsidy that's being provided to enterprises to keep people on employment rolls and to people who've suffered but how long can you continue to do this particularly because you're ideologically stuck on you know you've caught yourself in this bind because you've created this narrative that your system and your policy is superior so i think that that again i don't think the party congress resolved that and i think the politburo standing committee meeting today basically tells us that we're going to see more of the same and if even if an exit strategy is being thought of there's nothing immediately that that's going to happen for people who are looking for how do we consider that an exit strategy might come about i think there are some markers that i would like to sort of highlight for people to look at first is see what the who says if the who changes the way it describes the pandemic and the threat from the virus i think the moment that happens i think it will create some room for the chinese leadership to sort of shift its policies see if china is sort of investing far more resources in vaccination as opposed to testing already there is a huge challenge with the kind of testing that's happening 
the cost on local governments. And there's a discussion about that cost of testing being transferred to individuals, to citizens. And there's lots of annoyance about that. So these are sort of two key things that people should look at. Also, thirdly, look at if there is any redefinition of what zero means in zero COVID. Because zero need not necessarily mean zero infections. It can mean, you know, a certain limit of infections within a certain zone or zero transmission beyond a certain zone. And that's happened in the past. So I think it's useful to see what that means. Look at if there are any changes in protocols regarding quarantine and things like that and foreign travel. Those will be sort of the steps that we should see incrementally to removing this policy. That said, I think, like you said, you know, there are two big economic themes that come out from the Congress. None of them really knew the idea of Chinese-style modernization, which is something that Xi Jinping spoke about in his report. And it's, yes, it's part of the party constitution. And the idea of high-quality development. Quickly, Chinese-style modernization, Xi Jinping talked about five key components of this, which is that it's a modernization of a huge population, a modernization of common prosperity for all, a modernization of material and spiritual enhancement. Spiritual essentially means cultural and ethical. Modernization that relies on the harmony between man and nature and a modernization of peaceful development. So essentially, this is, you know, the crux of all of these five is to say that Chinese-style modernization is going to be different from what we have seen in the West. And it necessarily has to be different because national conditions are different. We have a huge population. Our demographics are different. We have an elderly population. We have significantly aged population. We have a shrinking workforce. We have regional disparities. And there are different ethical, different social cultural norms, which require us to approach the path of modernization very differently from, say, what the West has done. The second point about common prosperity is that, look, we have lots of disparities in wealth, income, urban and rural and regions in terms of development. And we need to make sure that growth is balanced across all of these domains, because if these inequalities increase, it can lead to political and social turmoil. Now, this has significant policy consequences. So, for example, in the last year or so, we've seen, uh, last two years, we've seen lots of pressure on Chinese private sector. That's essentially been a product of some of this thinking that, look, we can't have capital-centered growth. We need to have growth which focuses on people and things like that. And people must progress. And you can't have stratification of society. You can't have pockets of wealth. You need to sort of break that down much more. You can't have monopolies in businesses. We need to break down some of that. So this has policy significance in that direction. The material and spiritual advancement and prosperity, you know, modernization essentially means that, look, Chinese modernization has to be led by the party. And therefore, there has to be an ideological component of it, a value-based component of it. And that value-based component should be based on very Chinese values and, you know, sort of CCP revolutionary values. Harmony between man and nature, again, really important from a policy point of view, because it talks about, it talks to the resource constraints that China faces and the overexploitation of natural resources. But it also talks to this idea that you will need to optimize the resources that you have, the natural resources, but you will also need to go outside to look for natural resources. So this includes things like rare earths, raw materials, to even agricultural land. Because food is going to be a significant issue. You know, how do you approach water policy? So some of these things are sort of part of that. And even say things like when you're investing in vehicles, new energy vehicles, investing in nuclear energy and things like that uh, to deal with pollution. Uh, and finally, peaceful development. The idea is that China is essentially going to be engaged with the outside world. And it's going to be engaged with the outside world on its own terms. You know, again, all of this is essentially to frame China's rise as different from the West's rise. And the Chinese are very critical of the West. High quality development essentially means, 
you know, largely means sort of similar things to what I've spoken. But one key part of it is that GDP growth is no longer the driving factor. One has to look at development from the perspective of not just quantity, but also quality. And across the board, the Chinese people need to receive a better quality of development, which includes from education to healthcare to housing to also salaries and support and all of that. So you have to think of quality as a whole. And that's the focus of development as opposed to just quantity. And along with that, you know, one key part of that is breaking down internal bottlenecks within the Chinese domestic markets and local protectionism within the Chinese domestic market to ensure that there is seamless trade, uh, there is seamless allocation of resources, of input resources, so factors of production. But there is also a seamless consumption cycle between domestic markets because there is tremendous local protectionism across Chinese cities and provinces which compete with each other for capital opportunity. So therefore, you know, one of the objectives is to sort of break down these barriers so that you can have much more smooth circulation in the economy. So those to me are the two, three big sort of takeaways from an economic policy point of view. Thanks, Manoj. So we'll take a short break now and come back for a discussion on another set of developments which are important for us, which relate to the foreign policy. Thank you. Welcome back. So Manoj, on the foreign policy front, Xi Jinping spoke about the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative last month. And he has spoken about these previously as well. He has said that the external environment has become much more challenging and it has greater uncertainty and instability today. In fact, in his first address to the Chinese military after taking over his third term, he said that be ready to fight and win wars. So what do you make of this posturing and what does the 20th Party Congress tell us about the future of Chinese foreign policy? Right. I mean, firstly, on this, uh, you know, his visit to the Joint Command Center and uh, his comment about being ready for war. I mean, Xi Jinping has been saying that since he took power the first time in 2012. So I don't think that that is particularly new. I think the emphasis in the media is newer. But to me, I don't sort of see that as, you know, he's been saying that for a while. A lot of that has to do with the reform of the Chinese armed forces which he has carried out and also the reform of, you know, focus in terms of how the armed forces trains, you know, a lot of the training in the past was not sort of to get yourself combat ready. And again, this is a force which has not seen combat in nearly four decades. So it's really important from their point of view to sort of become combat ready, at least in their training. So I think I sort of look at it that way. I don't look at it as an alarmist statement. I mean, also, you know, it's worth saying that when the commander in chief of an armed forces goes and visits the armed forces, he will ask them to prepare for war and prepare for conflict, you know. But yeah, I mean, it sort of takes, takes sort of salience because of the environment that we find ourselves in. Right. So everything sort of takes salience because of that. In terms of sort of broadly the foreign policy, I mean, again, if you read through Xi Jinping's speech and if you read through his speeches over the years, what you will see is that there is this increasing sense of dread in each speech about the external environment, of it becoming much more competitive, of there being newer challenges and the space for China becoming constrained. You know, the threat sort of perception, particularly with regard to the US rising and factors of instability and uncertainty across the board rising. 
Uh, but at the same time, this sense of, you know, China being in a much better position to be able to deal with some of these things because of its increased material capacity and its armed forces capacity and things like that. And I think you see that sort of still in this speech. The fact that, you know, although sort of I think in this speech at the 20th Party Congress, like I said, while you do still see both of those facets, you do still see a greater sense of concern. You know, to me, the speech was not something where he talked about, you know, which is not like a leader coming to the podium celebrating the fact that he's now assumed an all-powerful position and he's got his guys in place, you know. It was a huge personal victory for him. Yet, his speech, if you listen to it, it's and if you read through it, it's he sounds, there's much more sense of challenge and dread than, you know, something to do with sort of prosperity and, you know, success and things like that. It's not a positive picture that he's painting. He talks a lot about struggle in the speech. He, he talks about the, you know, that attempts at containment and, you know, may take place at any time. He talks about the fact that China is at a stage where crisis and opportunities will coexist um, these will be concurrent. There can be black swans and gray rhino events at any time. So I think there's much more sort of sense of dread about, you know, the external environment that China faces. And I think that's for good reason, because China's external environment is incredibly tricky at this point of time. And that's reflected in his remarks about the need to sort of dare to fight, dare to struggle, dare to win. And if you want to, you know, the fact that if you're going to go ahead and rejuvenate the country or achieve this goal of national rejuvenation, then we need people who are who have a spine, who will stand up for principle and who will dare to struggle and things like that. So that's the kind of language that you are hearing from the ecosystem. In fact, after the party congress, uh, Ding Shui-shang, who is you know, a new Politburo Standing Committee member and again, somebody who's very close to Xi Jinping, had a long article. And if you read through that article, which I've translated in my newsletter, he essentially points to a continuation of an aggressive foreign policy, but it's reflective of this deep sense of siege that the party feels because there is tremendous work to be done. So that's, I think, the conception on the world. In terms of a lot of this has to do with, you know, competition with the United States. And while Xi Jinping did not mention the United States in his speech, every reference in terms of the external challenges, whether it was long-arm jurisdiction, attempts at small circles and groups, you know, building of walls and things like that. All of that is essentially targeted at the United States and U.S.'s Indo-Pacific strategy. So I think that sense that the United States is a strategic challenge here to stay and a challenge that is not just about containing China's rise, but also potentially about influencing systemic change in China I think there's much more of a reflection of that in this speech. One sort of, you spoke about GDI and GSI and, you know, Xi Jinping talked about his foreign policy outlook sort of referring to these two and talking about greater outreach towards the developing world. Interestingly, Belt and Road did not feature in the foreign policy section of his speech, but it featured in the economic policy section of the speech. So one gets a sense that that's not going to be a key for it. It's, it's going to be there, it's going to be important, but it's not your sort of key push. GDI and GSI, Global Development Initiative and Global Security Initiative, will be sort of key factors that he's pushing. You know, I'll focus on the Global Security Initiative. You know, to me, it's still undefined. What we've got so far is that there are six principles which are, you know, very anodyne sounding and, you know, anybody who reads them will say, well, China itself does not follow these six principles. But uh, I think it's useful to sort of think of what this can be. I think what the Chinese are trying to do, what the government is trying to do is trying to figure out what sort of actions and what sort of measures will be acceptable. I think that there are three buckets of measures that we are likely to see. 
One is sort of traditional security cooperation under Global Security Initiative, which implies you know bilateral and multilateral military training, drills, intelligence sharing, counterterrorism cooperation, or setting up of you know offices and systems, say the security headquarters for the African Union and things like that. So I think you're likely to see things like that, joint policing operations. So your traditional, what you think of traditional security areas would be one part. I think the second part of kind of initiatives that you're likely to see are around economics and finance. So, you know, say agreements on food security, on energy supply, on trade in local currencies, sort of finding ways to deal with economic challenges that the current environment, external environment has brought about, but also trying to find ways how you can sanction proof the Chinese economy, given the you know, the threat of Western sanctions and what those can do. I think the Beijing has observed what's happening with Russia. And the third set of actions would be sort of international norms across domains like uh, human rights, digital governance, data security, space, biological threats, biowarfare, and terrorism. I think China would like to frame norms around these issues, which are favorable to its sort of perception of how these issues should be looked at. So I'll give you one example on this, which is say when it comes to digital governance or data security. Beijing approaches these issues largely from the perspective of sovereignty and it wants to frame norms with that at the heart of it. But say countries like India or countries in Europe, as much as sovereignty matters to India, but for other countries and including India, privacy and a citizen-based view, an individual rights-based view might also be extremely important. But if you let Beijing set the norms under this sort of securitized view of the digital space, you might sort of end up in a position where you have more countries leading towards that agenda. So that's the kind of difference in terms of norm setting. And essentially norms will define how things will operate, right? So I think that's the third part of GSI that I, my sense is that we're likely to see. So to me, that's the sort of agenda. And again, it's a very broad agenda on foreign policy. But again, lots of continuity from the past. Right. Uh, So since you mentioned the siege mentality and this persistent fear of external threat, which is not new, but keeps growing day by day, it seems to me. So if this is the sort of Chinese psyche today, what does all this hold for India in the near future? Because I believe India has made its stance clear until and unless there is a proper resolution of our border dispute, there is no business as usual going ahead. So what do you think the future holds for India-China foreign relations? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was recently I was approached by a media personnel, media entity to sort of talk about this. And my response to them was that I'm not optimistic about it at all. And after that, the conversation got cut short very quickly. <laughs> but look, my sense is this, that this relationship is going to be volatile going forward for very structural reasons, right? We are in a situation today of an sort of uneasy, friction-ridden, armed coexistence, which is very different from the kind of tranquility and peace that we had at least for a couple of decades after 1988, this is going to continue. We might have some common interests. So for example, at COP27, there may be some areas where we may agree on. So for example, you know, the the responsibility of developed countries in terms of climate finance and things like that. But despite those common interests and, and, you know, which may be in certain pockets, I think there is deep political mistrust. There is volatility, which is going to continue. And none of that is going to change. 
in terms of, you know, the big sort of structural reason why none of that is going to change is obviously that both powers are rising. Their sort of spheres of influence are, you know, conflicting with each other and their spheres of interests are conflicting with each other or sort of coinciding with each other. And you're going to therefore see friction. But at the same time, I think the fact that Beijing continues to look at India from the prism of its competition with the United States is going to remain an enduring challenge. China would like India, you know, China understands that its primary competition is with the United States. Its strategic rivalry is with the United States. Yet for China to rise and to have sort of for that rivalry to further, it requires, it first needs to be, enjoy sort of a hierarchical superiority in what would be a unipolar Asia. For India, Asia must be multipolar with India being a key pole, you know, and that in itself is sort of conflicting interests. Now, if India was to even assure China that in your strategic rivalry with the United States, we don't have a dog in this fight, you know, so we're not leaning one way or the other, because if that's what Beijing wants from us, a certain degree of surety, there is nothing that we can do tangibly to provide that surety to China. You know, our relationship with the United States is independent. It's going to continue to deepen for interest reasons, for values reasons for economic reasons, for people-to-people reasons. There is a strategic element to it, of course. But even if that strategic element was to be curtailed, you're still going to see a deep India-US relationship. For Beijing, that is going to continue to provoke anxiety. So there is very little that India can offer to China to deal with its anxiety. You know, And I think the Indian foreign minister has on quite a few occasions said this, right? that Beijing must stop looking at India through the lens of a third country. Yeah, you know, he's repeatedly said this, that China must not look at the relationship with India through the lens of a third country. But unfortunately, it's, again, a structural challenge for China to do that. So to me, therefore, and particularly after the Party Congress, given the way in which it seems that Xi Jinping is conceptualizing the nature of the challenge from the United States, it's very unlikely that any of that is going to change. You know, and the fact that Beijing views, you know, desires a rise which is predicated to begin with on sort of dominance in Asia, friction with India is inevitable. So if that's going to continue, I think what we've seen in the border in the last two years is the start of a long phase of tremendous volatility and probably much more, unfortunately, unfortunately much more such friction, not just on the boundary, but also in the Indian Ocean region. So I think from an Indian point of view, we should be prepared for that. Thanks a lot, Manoj, for joining me today and unpacking the 20th Chinese Party Congress and explaining all these developments to our listeners. We hope to hear more from you in the coming weeks. Thanks, Krishna. Take care. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.